we have a sharks at lasers coming out of the F 35 and the engine will have enough power to like, you know, feed the shark and power the laser. Like <laughs> I, I, that's pretty, uh, it's a pretty bold claim there. All players low down. All right, we're live. Welcome to another episode of The Merge, where we make sense of defense in an enjoyable way. The last few episodes, we we dug into some off-the-path uh, wonky topics that are uh, very, very important, but maybe not very interesting to all of you out there. Uh, it's a dirty job. Someone's got to do it. Uh, but today is the day that I make up for that, because we're going to talk about something to do with fighter jets, specifically the F-35 engine debate. Uh, it's got a little bit of politics, technology, industry, drama, lots and lots of drama. Uh, but real actions are real consequences. Billions of dollars are at stake and lives uh, if we get it wrong. So to help me unpack all of this, I've got Matt McGregor on the show. Welcome. Thanks, Mike. Good to be here. Yeah, listeners might remember him. We had him back on episode four when we talked about how the Pentagon buys stuff. Uh, Matt works at a think tank. He's got experience in the Pentagon and industry. And he is a self-described acquisition nerd. That is his LinkedIn profile title. This one, I'm, this is not me throwing shade. It's him, not me. I own me. that. I own that. I <laughs> know oh, it's great to have you on the show. I always appreciate our conversations and the, the depth of experience and knowledge you have on this. So uh, this is going to be great. But uh, quick plug before we begin. If you like what you hear, please do something about it. If you have five seconds, just like and subscribe the podcast if you have 30 seconds, leave us a review. You can do that on Apple Podcast. Uh, we're on IMDb now, so go with that. Or uh, head over to our YouTube channel, uh, like, follow, and uh, leave us a comment. We're, uh, we'll reply to all the comments. Uh, and finally, if you have friends, and I think you probably do, tell them about the show and the newsletter. Please don't keep us a secret. Uh, it really helps us keep going and growing. Okay, admin complete. Let's talk about F-35 engines. Uh, Matt, I'll set the stage and then we'll just kind of riff off of that if that's okay. Let's do it. All right. So the scene setter, the F-35 has an engine. Uh, the current engine configuration works, uh, but it has a couple of issues. The first issue is it's running way hotter than it was designed to run, which is shortening the life cycle of the engine that was planned. And the second one is that the engine does not produce enough power or cooling to support all of the upgrades that are coming to the jet. And so those upgrades, it's called block four. Uh, it's, right now it costs $16.5 billion uh, of upgrades going into the jet. And we'll talk about more like that uh, later. It's about 69 different upgrades, but we don't have an engine with the power and cooling to support that laundry list of upgrades that all that goodness. So Matt, did that capture it right? That kind of scene setter? Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, you know, there's um, all kinds of operational issues with um, you know wear and tear and the sustainment and um, you know so yeah, lots of issues in the in the current uh, structure. So, and you worked in on the F-35 program uh, years ago. Uh, I think going through some of these growing pains with some of these issues, didn't you? Yeah, I was there in 2012, 2015, um, serving on the. Uh, leadership team for a while and then uh, after a restructure mostly on the production team so yeah it was during that period there was a lot of uh, uh upgrades to primarily we hadn't really gotten into all the mission system problems yet or these engine uh failures 
but we we were dealing with a lot of the uh, structural stuff. So that was uh, second and third life testings that was going on. We found uh, all kinds of bulkhead issues and things where we changed from titanium to aluminum. It was stressing faster. So that was uh, that was the juror topic of the day for GAO back then was concurrency and all the structural upgrades. And now we've kind of moved into some of the more internal uh, electronics and, and the challenges there. So. Well, I, I mean, I guess that's that's good. We start with the airframe and now we're moving in the propulsion and then yeah. subsystem. So if the, the problems get smaller, even they're big problems, but they get smaller as the program continues to, to mature and we keep learning along the way, which is, you know, it's a it's a journey, right? It's not a destination. Oh, yeah. <laughs> as with sure. all acquisition programs in the military, uh, it's a journey, not a destination. Um, okay, so I think some people might be out there thinking why we're being like, somewhat flippant about why the the newest military fighter jet that we have we're talking about it needing a new engine um but but the reality is so let's just talk about that for a second so the reality is the f-35 isn't really that new it's the newest <laughs> but it's not that new the requirements that that define the engineering uh, specifications for the f-35 that includes the engine they were written about 22 to 23 years ago by my math um, yeah, the 90s, late 90s, right? late 90s, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so yeah. late 90s, so like 97, 99 time frame, those were written and locked in. And so from there, you set your, you snap your chalk line and now you go build the thing that you say you're going to build. And so the thing that's flying around in the air now was designed in the 90s. That That is the scene setter. Um, so similar to how you have your, your, your phone, everyone's got a phone in their pocket, uh, you, you update it every few years. So the F-35 has had kind of the same thing. Uh, and, and all weapons programs go through this, but the F-35 has uh, what's called tech refreshes, TRs, to keep up with the time. So the latest one is called Tech Refresh 3, TR3, and it includes a, a new processor that has uh, more memory, a new cockpit display and a few other things really that set the the airframe foundation for these block four mods so that list of 69 upgrades that i told you about so the block four is uh the tr3 is the foundation block four is all the goodness and then to do that you need an engine that has the power and the cooling to make it all happen that's a great summary mike all right so let's talk about the the issue today which is the engine so power and cooling uh, the first one is when we say power, we're not talking about thrust. We're talking about electrical power. I'm not exactly too smart on the power specifications, uh, electrical wise coming off the generators that are you know, spun by the engine. And I know there's generator upgrades out there, but it sounds like the, the power that they're talking about is, is significantly different in the future that just a generator is not going to, going to help fix it. Does that, does that sound right? Yeah, I mean, the power requirements, I think, uh, you know, once we started to build all the, you know, all those electronics and, you know, meet all the demanding, I mean, there were pretty demanding requirements, right? So we were really trying to push the cutting edge. Uh, after all that came together, right, the, the electrical requirements were just a, a lot higher uh, than, than what was expected. Uh, you know, EW kind of requirements played into that, and, and they will continue to play into it in Block 4 in, in serious ways, along with the radar. You know, ra the radar, if you really think about the, the real operational uh, cutting-edge stuff, you can really focus on the radar and the EW as being probably the best uh, the best that's out there and and really pushing the cutting edge. So, And those are the two things that really require a lot of power. So. Yeah, and there's and there's a lot of things. I'm, I'm gonna get a few of this wrong, so there's my alibi. But there's a lot of things in the F-35 that 
are electrically actuated and operated that uh, that aircraft before even the F-22 don't have. And so it has fly-by-wire, but it has electrically actua uh, actuated control surfaces, not hydraulically uh, augmented control surfaces. Yeah. And so even that puts an electrical demand signal on the aircraft. And so, and so when you get into the, the flat panel display versus switches, and those are it just adds to this burden. Uh, it's a thousand paper cuts um, that are adding this electrical burden on the aircraft. And so that's, that's where the power angle. So there's a power deficit that needs to be fixed. Um, the second part of this equation is the cooling. Um, and that one's a little bit more understood. Um, so I can talk a little bit more, <laughs> more intelligently about that. So the two parts of the conversation when you get in the cooling is the engine cooling and then the jet cooling. And so the engine cooling, when we talk about that, we're talking about bleed air. And so bleed air, for those of you who don't know, that is when you take air out of the engine after it's been compressed, but before it's been combusted. And so most engines have a bypass ratio of the percentage of air that bypasses the combustion. And that part of that air is then siphoned off. And that's why it's called bleed air. It's bled off and then fed into the aircraft, that air is really hot, even though it's not combusted. So you're thinking two to 300 degrees. It goes through a cooling system to cool it off. Usually uh, in a normal aircraft, you would use uh, pressurized air from the atmosphere because at altitude, it's really cold, like negative 40 degrees. Um, but when you have a stealth aircraft and everything's buttoned up and there's no, um, there's no openings, you the general thing that you want to use is fuel. So you use the fuel uh, to cool the air, and then you feed the air back into the aircraft, the cooler air, and that provides things like cockpit pressurization. Then most importantly for this is avionics cooling. And so if you can't cool off the electrical components of the electrical aircraft, it doesn't work. So Matt, when we were looking at this, this actually came up recently in, the, in this debate of engines, and I didn't know this until probably a couple months ago. Way back in 2008, it's come out that Lockheed Martin actually brought up this issue to the Pentagon and said, hey, um, this engine is not going to meet the cooling requirements of this aircraft just based on the bleed air that's coming off of it. And so Lockheed Martin had requested a design update um, in 2013 to address the issues. And Matt, you may be able to speak to this or not based on your time in the Pentagon, but my understanding is because of the program issues that it had, so I think cost schedule and performance, it was, had significant issues during that time, and the fact that the Budget Control Act and sequestration were all kind of looming, uh, the Pentagon decided not to do anything about it. And so they wanted to save the money, don't add complexity to the program, let's fix the issues we have and, and press on. And so there's a there's a cooling issue that's been known since 2008 from the manufacturer back to uh, the customer about this. I don't recall that in, in the 2012 timeframe being a, you know, uh, there was a lot of discussions about different issues. Uh, you know, I, the, the ICP, the integrated core processor, which is a big part of TR3, was, yep. was even brought up back then as being like, we probably don't have enough compute power for all the things we want to do. Um, and, and so there was, there was a, you know, panoply of things that, you know, needed to be addressed. I don't remember that one being like top of the list. Um, and I think it was mitigated. I think before my time, it was mitigated with, 
uh, you know, uh, bringing more air in, sort of uh, uh, having more, you know, increasing the bleed air and having the the heat exchangers and stuff try to manage it as best they could. But yeah, like you said, there were much more pressing issues on the F-35C. There was a, the, the tail hook uh, was having issues and that dominated like the Navy discussion uh, on the, uh, the uh, you know, the F-35A. There was talk about the gun that was dominating and then all the structural upgrades and things like that. So yeah, there was, there was a lot of other stuff going on that. One of the interesting side notes of this history of the cooling problem of the F-35 is back in uh, before about 2014, um, you didn't see a whole lot of sunshades at Air Force fighter bases. <laughs> and so because of the F-35 issue, one of the first things they started doing back in about 2014, the Air Force started painting the fuel trucks white on the F-35 bases so it would keep the fuel cooler. And so when the fuel would get pumped into the jet, the cooler fuel would help cool off the avionics the way that the, the cooling system works off the bleeder. So the cool fuel helps cool the hot air, and then that cooler air goes back into uh, the avionics, into the jet. So as a as a byproduct of the F-35 cooling issue, you see fourth-gen fighter bases everywhere now have sunshades, where before they all, like, decades, they were just sitting out in the sun and the rain, and it, yeah, it's been terrible. You're welcome, uh, maintainers, sir. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Like. Yeah, maintainers get the benefit from all of the of all of this. So yeah, it's it's an interesting dynamic of how it works. Because then you get and you're like, well, why do these bases all have sunshades and those don't? Like this sucks. Like all right, everyone just buy sunshades and get it over with. <laughs> okay, so we talked about the the cooling and, there, and we said there's two different types. Uh, there's the jet and then there's the engine. So we were talking about the engine, the cooling, and the bleed air and the the air coming off the engine. And so the F-35 has a thing called the Power and Thermal Management System, the PTMS. The current system is made by Honeywell. It's called the IPP, the Integrated Power Package. Uh, we have way too many acronyms in this show already, by the way. I just want to point that out. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so all of this stuff is managed by this, this system. Well, this system itself is, again, 20-something years old. They're looking for an upgrade. And regardless of what engine we end up picking um, to go in the aircraft, which is, we'll get to that in just a second, um, it, that's going to need an upgrade too. So Collins, they just rolled out last month. They have a, an upgrade they're calling the Enhanced Power and Cooling System, uh, EPACS. And they claim it's going to provide two and a half times more cooling than the current system in the F-35. All right. You guys, you ready to talk about engines, Matt? Sure, let's do it. Okay, so there's two types of engines, and this is what the engine debate is all boiled around. Okay, and there's pros and cons of each, and it's not as simple of a solution as you might think. Okay, let's go with the first one. So Pratt & Whitney is the current maker of the engine that's flying in every F-35 in the world today. It's called the F-135. Imagine that. They are furiously fighting to argue their position that their engine should stay in every single F-35 in the world, but it should have a thing called an engine core upgrade. And the engine core upgrade should solve all of these problems. And the good part about it is that the engines are already out there. And so as the engines go through depot, they can get this modification. It will fit all three variants. So the F-35A for the Air Force, B for the Marine Corps, uh, and C for the Navy. Uh, it's going to be cheaper because you can do that. 
with the engine already fielded. It's a mature engine because it's already been developed. It's coalition ready, meaning every F35 customer, it's pretty much no extra cost to them. It's part of the life cycle cost of the program. And Pratt Whitney claims that that this will it'll solve all the problems that they have extend the life of the engine and because of that it'll save the f-35 program about 40 billion dollars over the life cycle um i don't know if that number's right it's a big number it's a it's a very very long program with a lot of aircraft i think it's there's a lot of assumptions behind that number but that's what they're trying to pitch uh, does that sound right matt yeah, and I think primarily it's what you said about the sustainment. Um, there's already an industrial base supply chain, you know, built around it. That took a long time to build up. Um, I would also add the integration piece because, uh, you know, integrating a new engine is not trivial on a jet that is not a federated platform. It's highly, highly integrated. So, you know, anytime you you put a new chunk of hardware in, uh, you're you're going to have to deal with that, and it's. Uh, you know, it's going to, it'll, it'll have unexpected impacts, right? Once you get it in there, there'll be different things that will have to be adjusted, software tweaked and, and things like that. So, so yeah, the integration piece, they'll they'll still have to happen. But yeah, I think, I think the manufacturer or the, uh, the savings, you know, are real. If you think about standing up a whole new supply chain and going through that whole process, which took like 10, 15 years, right. To, to get to. So yeah, there's definitely growing pains with that. Yeah. Uh, okay. So let's talk about the bad part of the engine core upgrade. So what, what are the bad parts about just upgrading the current engine? The 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 main thing that I can think of, uh, and you know, happy to chat about this if you want. So, Pratt and Whitney claims that this engine core upgrade that they're going to do it now, it'll be fielded by 2030. It will solve all of the current and predicted future problems that no one has thought of yet through 2070. So the F-35 will be fixed forever. That's mm-hmm. that is literally what they're claiming. Um, and so for those who don't do math, uh, I don't do math in public, but I looked at it ahead of time. They are predicting the F-35 capability 48 years into the future. And this is from the same company that failed to predict the current engine capability problem 22 years ago. So they're doubling down. They were wrong the first time. They're doubling down on the length of time they're going to predict the future going forward. That's where I I have a huge, huge problem with that. There's some pretty strong uh, claims from Pratt Whitney about their ability to do that. I had not heard that 2070 time frame. That's well. I mean, the the F-35 is supposed to fly until 2070, and Pratt's already come out and said our magical solution will handle everything for Block Four, Five, Six, Seven everything after I'm like, well, we don't even know everything that's going to be at the end of block four yet because the way that the program structured. So like to think that we have a sharks at lasers coming out of the F 35 and the engine will have enough power to like, you know, feed the shark and power the laser. Like <laughs> I, I, that's pretty, uh, it's a pretty bold claim there. I'm not well, sure I mean, about the, that. The thrust, I mean, the, as they've, I, I understood the way it was advertised, the ECU, the, uh, engine core upgrade was, uh, six to maybe six to 10% increase in thrust, which kind of translates to power. And so, you know, and uh, with all the block four stuff, I think there was talk of it needing something like uh, increase from 47 kilowatts of cooling to 60 kilowatts. So, um, Oh yeah, I'm sorry. There was uh, so they might be talking about it from a cooling perspective. So in terms of like thrust and all the other stuff. So if we just focus on the cooling piece, 
they might be right because they're saying they can get a 50% increase in cooling. And and most of the talk about block four and some of the other weapons integration stuff is like moving from like a 47 kilowatt to 60. And maybe maybe if you can get to 60, maybe that does keep you for a, a fair, fair, fair part of time. Now, we don't know what a block five upgrade would look like yeah, right no yeah. right so <laughs> we, you know directed energy weapons are another one that have been talked about you know as a future f-35 upgrade that that could drive a lot of, of new considerations so yeah i think that is pretty uh audacious to, <laughs> to say 2070 yeah. maybe maybe 2040 I, I could live with 2040 i've read something recently that doing the research for this episode that even the joint program office that's the program who manages the f-35 program for the pentagon They've even come out and said, hey, you know what? We don't even have the actual requirements from the three services to know what the cooling and power like specification should be. We just know we need more. Like how much more? Like, I don't know. Depends on the customer. So I think trying to say that you can solve the problem when the person who owns the specifications of what to be built has said, I don't know what, I, what the problem is to be solved yet because I don't have the data. I don't know. There's a lot of marketing, obviously, that goes into this. Um, when you try to get into the details, it's at the end of the day, you have to build, build for the future, build for a pad. You know, well, one one positive thing though, I will say on that is like I, I think um, DMS upgrades, diminishing manufacturing sources, uh, they're constantly doing upgrades on the F-35 because you know the supply chains. Typically, the F-35 uses the most high-end components um, and a lot of uh, electronic. Uh, um, you know, product lines and those product lines are constantly shifting, right. To keep up with the, the latest you know, demand in the TV sector and cell phones and all that stuff. So one of the, one of the most maybe promising things that can help the F-35 is as they are doing those upgrades, they will get access to better tech that maybe can help drive down some of the, the, the cooling requirements, electronics are getting better. And uh, so maybe they can take advantage of, of some of those, those tech advancements and that can kind of help mitigate, even if they do, other upgrades, maybe they can help mitigate that with some of the advances in, uh, in technology. Because cooling is not just an issue for fighter jets, right? It's a that's an issue for for anything that's electronic. So I don't know. That's maybe like me being too optimistic, but that's something to consider. Yeah, and oh by the way, the Pratt and Whitney is the engine provider of the B twenty one bomber. The actual engine used in the B twenty one bomber has not been revealed. If I was a betting man, I would say it is a non-afterburning variant of the F-35 engine. And there's two of them, one on each side of the cockpit. Um, so anything that goes into an F-35 engine upgrade, specifically the one we're talking about with Pratt & Whitney, would stand the benefit in the B-21 program going forward. That's that's my hypothesis. Again, I don't know exactly the engine that's because it's not been revealed publicly, but that's my hypothesis. Okay. Let's talk about the other thing, and then we'll then we'll get into the nuances of, of kind of the what's going on in the, the politics. Okay, so the first thing that we talked about was option one, which is we have the incumbent engine built by Pratt & Whitney. We're going to do an engine core upgrade. It's going to solve all the world's problems, and it's going to be cheap. It's going to be fast. It's going to be good. That's the sales pitch. Um, the other option is what's called an adaptive engine. So... Pratt & Whitney's rival, General Electric, they have been pushing an adaptive engine design. And what that is, it is the new generation of engines. And it's a three-stream engine that can transition that third stream to be optimized for either thrust or range. 
And so it allows you, uh, if you if you remember that discussion we had earlier about bypass ratios, so a normal engine has a, uh, a stream of air that goes into the engine, so suck, squeeze, bang, blow. It has a bypass ratio of a percentage of that air that does not go into the combustion chamber that's used for other things. And the adaptive engine adds a third stream, and that third stream, think of it as like, uh, like the variable cam timing in an engine. Uh, and used in your car. So in the 90s, uh, like VTEC, Honda's VTEC, when you use variable timing for my cam to get different, uh, optimized for different performance based on where I push the gas pedal, that's kind of the same thing, but now we're doing it for turbine engines. And so that's really kind of the, the best analogy I can think of. And so what you get out of the adaptive engine, which, what makes it adaptable is I could adjust to have more fuel efficiency or I can adjust it when I need to. Again, I push the gas pedal to the floor and now it shifts the, that ratio and of that third stream and now I can optimize for more thrust. And so in the process of designing a, this new engine, you have orders of magnitude more bleed air available and you have presumably an entire new electrical system coming off of that engine. And that third stream bleed air uh, my understanding is it also allows you to increase the power, electrical power based on the bleed air and the, what's the air that's going by the vein that's driving the generator, uh, when you need to. I think you, you, you're probably, uh, more into some of the details of the, uh, internal, <laughs> internal operations of it. But, um, yeah, my understanding was, you know, this has been an S and T project. I, I, when I was in uh, South AQ and the acquisition arm, it was a big, it was a big topic. Uh, it was a big priority for the air force to get, um, you know, one more additional engine manufacturer and the promises are, you know, pretty substantial, right? 25% better efficiency, uh, 30% greater range, which in the Indo-Pacific fight is, you know, pretty attractive, uh, 10 to 20% more thrust and 200 like percent cooling so you know way more cooling capacity than than the ecu so yeah it was it's always been it's been air force priority for the last like five years and a lot of money i want to say like four billion or so has been put into it for those of you who aren't aware when you look at military jet engine industrial base it's a 50 50 split basically between general electric and pratt and whitney and so when we talk about these debates there's different engineering approaches that go into it but at the end of the day it's a 50-50 market share split. And so when we talk about any of these engine programs, no surprise, the two co primary contractors in every engine development program in the military are General Electric and Pratt Whitney. So General Electric has been pushing their adaptive engine, it's called the XA-100, but Pratt Whitney has their own engine in that program called the XA-101. Uh, you don't hear them talk about it very much because of the narrative that they're trying to push for the F-35 uh, engine core upgrade, but it's there. And what I think is interesting, the fact that they're in the same program as General Electric building the same adaptive engines, it gives them credibility to talk about the the trade-offs, the engineering trade-offs and what you can and can't do with it based on where the technology is right now. Um, the Air Force has been developing these, by the way, in, in research and development since 2007. And so your, your $4 billion uh, mark is probably about right. The, the current program, it's called the Adaptive Engine Transition Program, AETP. And that, that one's had about $2.7 in it. But there was two programs before that kind of all have been building up into this, this program. So $4 billion is probably about right. Um, it's going to take another like $6 billion. This is the Air Force's talking point. $6 billion more 
to get it into a production ready engine. And I think by the time you get it through uh, flight sciences, aircraft integration, flight control software reprogramming, and you got envelope validation, you're looking at probably a $10 billion bill. That's a lot of money. Yeah, I think you're right. If you consider yeah the the cost increases that occurred over the F-35 programming, what it took to integrate the F-135. Yeah, w- one point on, uh, you're right about the AETP program having both GE and Pratt, uh, but I will say GE was always the dominant uh, sort of player in that program. And I think you kind of hit on it. It's primarily because Pratt was was not as motivated to to do the upgrade, so they never made quite as much progress uh, because they were focused on the F-135, right? That was where their cash flow was coming in, whereas GE was very motivated because they were trying to compete for the next round. So, so yeah, the ATP program, when I think of it, the XA-100 is your really your only option. Um, and you know, it's, uh, yeah, it does need almost 7 billion, 6.7 is one of the number, one of the figures I had. The, the ECU is still 2.4 billion though. So I think we have to, we have to look at the schedules. Um, the, the F-135, even though it has a lot of those advantages on the supply chain, it's still not going to field until the 2030s. Um, and the XA-100 could actually field a little bit earlier. But one of the one of the things that uh, we have to talk about is the fact that the Marine Corps is going to get shafted in, in any kind of literally, in, literally yeah. shafted. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I didn't even mean that. But they're they're going to get this the the uh, you know uh, tough end of the uh, tough end of the bargain here if 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 we actually did do the XA one hundred because it's not compatible with the with the Rolls Royce lift fan and so that's something that they would they would have to have their own supply chain continue supply chain for that or have to do major upgrades which I I don't think they would given the numbers that they're looking at so so yeah so we have to. We definitely have to recognize that, uh, you know, none of this is going to happen super quick. It's going to be expensive either way. But yeah, the. Yeah, I'd say the the other things. So, yeah, the first one is it costs more money. The second one is. If it depends on who you talk to, Pratt Whitney said there's no way that an adaptive engine can fit on a F-35B just the way that the shaft works out yeah. the front of the engine and the, the nozzle out of the back. GE says we don't think it's not impossible. But we're not sure exactly how we would do it. Uh, so again, <laughs> that's the different different camps that you're in. The one thing I think that gets missed in this conversation is the way that the adaptive engine programs, so GE's engine, for instance, and, and really Pratt's too, those those are forty five thousand pound class engines, which is benchmarked against the F thirty five engine. Um, but they're they're trying to get them small enough when they talk about a, a production ready engine they're trying to get that small enough to fit in that power class to fit in an f-35 these are big engines right now oh yeah and even when you do that the the adaptive engine because it has just more stuff um and it's probably over engineered in some places because we still have a lot to learn about the about this engine technology it's a thousand pounds heavier so for perspective, you're adding 25% more engine weight to the back of the F-35. When you look at the center of gravity of an F-35, which is not that big, by the way, you're putting 1,000 extra pounds on the back of the aircraft. And when you look at uh, its flight envelope and payload capacity, and in a fighter, FCG is like the worst thing possible when you look at stability and control in the flight envelope. So it'll be really, really curious to, to see what the analysis is on 
if you get to a production ready F-35, what is that weight limit? Because a thousand right now they're a thousand pounds heavier. You have to shave off a thousand pounds out of that engine. Yeah, that is not trivial. <laughs> uh, oh, you know when you talked about the the GE is doing better than Pratt on the adaptive engine. Do you know why? Well, well, for me, I think it's just the motivations and the you know they, there's only so much workforce that they have right that does this. This is such a specialized thing. Like there's a reason. Even if you look at commercial aircraft, like. Really, it comes down to Rolls Royce, Pratt and Whitney, and, and GE, yeah. and uh, and GE uh, uh, Pratt still, you know, is, is dominant. Um, but yeah, it's it's like this is really specialized, complicated technology with people that have to have grown up in that space. You know, it's not something you just kind of like walk into and learn. So, yeah, I think they just have only have so many people, and so many, you know, their best people they probably had on the F one thirty five because they were selling it and trying to you know make it. Uh, make it work and 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 affordability the other piece is affordability was very dominant on the f-35 especially in the during the concurrency time because there was that feeling that we had some partners we had some fms uh, uh players but we were not where we are now and a big part of of, of of the vision for the f-35 was to get a lot more international partners into it and for it to be the fighter of choice and that needed to be an affordable thing we couldn't we couldn't have a hundred and ten million dollar fighter and and expect you know the Germans and you know some of these other customers to buy it. So, you know we we focused on that and that's I think you know where Pratt was also focused. So they were continuing to work on this engine all those years, but a lot of it was focused on that they had a they had a war on affordability is what they called it, um, and they were trying to make it more affordable. And so you know I think that's where they that's where they spent a lot of their energy and maybe not as uh, didn't have some of the people working on the uh, their adaptive engines. Yeah, there there is a fascinating history behind it. Uh, when I was prepping for this episode, I kind of went down a research rabbit hole, and I'm like, ah, this makes so much more sense now. Uh, before we get to that, real quick, speaking of history, one of one of Pratt Whitney's talking points that they threw out, uh, and I love history. They said, in the history of the Air Force, a single engine centerline aircraft has never before been re-engined with a brand new engine because the inherent risk to pilot safety i'm like that's a very very specific claim so i went wow. and actually researched it and that and that this pratt and whitney's talking point actually set me off in this like history rabbit trail which gave me the perspective of general electric i'm like oh this is full circle this is great so pratt and whitney won the f-35 engine competition um but that's not a new engine that engine is based off of the f-22 so it's not a clean sheet engine design just so everyone's tracking at home. If we go back, and I'll come back to that in just a second. Um, the F-16 was a single-engine fighter, and it, on purpose, used the F-15 engine for this exact reason. It didn't have to worry about new aircraft and a new engine. It used another engine. When you look at the Century Series, um, some of those, uh, that's the F-100 through 106 back in the in the 60s, uh, those used uh, the J series, so your J uh, 57, 75, and 79. Some of those were new. Some of those were originally uh, built for jet-powered bombers and then adapted for fighters. But those weren't re-engined. Those were engined. And so Pratt & Whitney's claim is, again, very, very specific. But as far as I could tell, is it's, it's, it's true. It is a, it is a fact. But, uh, again, I said it, it sent me off in this rabbit trail. So that did you know there's 20 years of bad blood between 
Pratt and GE over adaptive cycle engines. 20 years. I was like, oh my God, I didn't realize yeah. this feud went back 20 years on adaptive engines. <laughs> I didn't realize it was and 20 it, years that I knew. Yeah. I knew they had, they were, because there was a lot of marketing stuff when, uh, remember, remember, because this was a big controversial thing for when the Air Force decided to go down to one engine. That was, oh, yeah. Yeah. I'll get to that. Oh, okay. Okay. I'll, I'll, I'll hold <laughs> yeah. back. I'll hold back. Okay. Yeah. So the, uh, the current F 35 engine, we told you guys before, it's the Pratt Whitney F 135. It was developed in the early 2000s, but it's based on the F 22's F 119 engine core. So really, the F-35 engine flying around today, the technology is from the late 80s, early 90s. That's that's the easiest way to, to picture the current F-35 engine. Yes, it's it's based on the F-22. It's got some other stuff. Obviously, it puts out more thrust but it's because it's a big old single uh, engine fighter. Okay. Well, if you go back in the F-22 program, and this is where it gets really interesting, there were two engines in the F-22 program, in the ATF, the Advanced Tactical Fighter Competition. Uh, there was the YF-119, which was Pratt & Whitney, and then General Electric came to the plate with the YF-120, which most people don't really remember this in the history of the F-22 program. So you remember the, the two types of demonstrators that were built, the YF-22 and the YF-23, and the YF-23 gets a lot of uh, history buffs love it. It, it was it outperformed the YF-22. It, it was awesome. But most people don't realize that there was an adaptive cycle engine that flew in both of those aircraft in the competition. So GE's offering the YF-120 was an adaptive cycle engine. So they've already built one and flew it in the YF-22 and the YF-23. And you know what? It crushed the YF-119 performance. So in the in test, I looked it up, in test, the GE's adaptive cycle engine in the YF-23 could super cruise to Mach 1.7. That's ridiculous. Uh, I've been Mach 1.7, and it's hard to get there, like really, really hard. So to, to do that in super cruise, that's not using afterburner, that's ridiculous. Um, at the end of the day, though, as you guys know, GE's adaptive cycle engine is not in the F-22, uh, and the reason why, it was based on design risk, not performance. The Air Force had an option in the 90s, to, to make a choice here, I would say based on the conditions in the world at the time, it was probably the right choice. Um, end of the Cold War, peace dividend, all that stuff. <laughs> so pouring salt in that wound, they go to the F-35 program. And one of the reasons, again, the engine competition you, you mentioned, GE had an engine for the F-35. It was called the uh, 136, yeah, the F-136. And the original plan, because of concurrency, correct me if I'm wrong, was they were gonna they were going to build one engine to start the program and then they were going to open up the competition in lot five, I think something like that for GE to bring their engine and then they would pick the best engine and then move forward. I think there was some, some people that hoped to be able to maintain both engine lines and keep them in perpetuity. Um, I, I think some acquisition executives had that vision because they, they felt that the competition would be good. Uh, but I think the realities of logistics of, oh yeah, we have to have, you know, engine supplies all over the place and having two uh, really kind of became like not cost effective. So 
so that they weren't willing to spend the cost. And I think Secretary Kendall, um, under Secretary Kendall at the time, was was uh, heavily involved in that decision. But but yeah, no, you're right. That that is a, the 136 was uh, was something I was going to bring up too. Is uh, in 2010, right? As like uh, so, a lot of this stuff is going down with the with the engines. Uh, GE actually teamed with Rolls Royce to say we'll we'll take the F136. You know, it had only been like partially built. It was like at seventy to eighty percent or something at the time. So they said, "We'll we'll take it to all the way, and we'll do it fixed price." You know, you give us give us a you know a, a basically a flat uh, uh, you know flat flat pot of money. We'll 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 accept all the risk, and, and we'll we'll get it there. And uh, the Air Force, uh, I think he was in charge at the time, turned it down. So pretty uh, pretty interesting. It would have that would have been uh, that that could have really helped sort of you know. Uh, keep keep the uh keep the supply chain going earlier in the program uh rather than than trying to make this shift to the ATP which was more like a science project that could have been could have could have changed the game on on how the uh the whole engine approach went but by my math it was five or six budget cycles that the GE engine was in contention and the Air Force or the JPO the joint program office so the Pentagon defunded it and then Congress put the money back in for, like for five or six straight years. There was political debate between the F-135 from Pratt Whitney and the F-136 from GE. And that was kind of based on the, the cost schedule performance of the Pratt and Whitney engine at the time. And so they were wanted to keep an a alternative option kind of, um, in a, in a warm status. And yeah, you're right. GE put a lot of their own money to mm -hmm. keep that program going and then finally it was like you know what like the politics of this is just getting too much like we're done so they've been burned once in the f-22 program they were burned twice with the alternative f-35 engine and so now here they are again the third time in a fighter program in the last 30 years you guys aren't tracking back in march uh the air force finally with their budget release said hey we're gonna go with the engine core upgrade and stay with the current engine. And that set off this huge, um, I'd say very rare. I, I, I can't remember another time where everyone started going to media to, to kind of start their, their lobbying. So the first thing GE said was, you know, Hey, that's, that's terrible. Um, you know, we're fencing, we're going to war, we're going to arm our lobbyists. And I think they actually had a talking point about that. Like our lobbyists are getting armed now. Like, Ooh, well, that's that. That was surprising when I saw that. Of course, Pratt and Whitney said, "Hey, you made the right call for you know the taxpayer and national security." The Joint Program Office came out and said, "Hey, the Air Force made the right decision," because another part of this calculation that we haven't mentioned yet is if the Air Force was the one pushing for this adaptive engine, they would have to foot the entire bill because the Marine it wouldn't fit in the Marine Corps jets. The Marine Corps is not going to pay for it which then leads you to go, well, will the Navy pay for it? Do they need it? Would the coalition pay for it? So the cost burden, it wouldn't be cost sharing across the coalition or even within the Pentagon. It would be, it would be the Air Force's bill to pay. And they're like, just again, cost capability analysis you got. I don't think it's worth it. So that's where they're like, hey, let's, let's just keep, let's just keep that. So everything sounds like, hey, that would be, that's playing out about right. The people, the incumbent says it's the right call. The person who lost says, hey, we're going to lobby Congress because we think it's the wrong call. And the JPO um, sides with the Air Force. All of that seems kind of normal. Um, and then it goes off the rails from that point. Matt, you uh, you want to take it from here or you want me to keep going? Yeah, keep keep going. You're, uh, you're in a roll. I'll, I'll jump All right. In. So 
very out of character, Lockheed Martin, who is the builder of the aircraft, came out and said, actually, the adaptive engine is, is the way to go. And basically, like, you know, swept the leg of their engine supplier of the current, you know, being the current propulsion solution for the F-35, so which is Pratt & Whitney. And then that pissed off Pratt & Whitney. And so they clapped back at Lockheed and they came out and said... Um, something to the effect of like Lockheed saying this like undermines the customer, the taxpayer and the warfighter like, Ooh, like, like, and they're working together day, like daily to put engines in F 35s. And they're having this like public spat back and forth. It's an interesting, uh, interesting play. There's some interesting talking points from Pratt and Whitney about why they think Lockheed Martin is saying that. I think Pratt probably has a pretty good point, uh, from a few reasons. Um, did I miss anything up to that point? Well, I, one thing I'll say is <clears throat> I don't think Pratt and Lockheed, there's ever been a lot any love lost there. So I, you know, it's, it's, yeah. they are teammates by virtue of they, they kind of have to be, um, and they work together to the point that they have to, but yeah, I wasn't too surprised. Well, I think that, uh, and I wasn't too surprised about that because if you think about the adaptive engine, it does make the F 35 a more attractive platform in terms of, you know, range and things like that. Uh, the range on the F 35 a is just uh, atrocious for um for what the intent was and the f-35c actually has substantially more range so the navy is sort of like yeah we can make this work uh the marines are like well we're not getting anything out so you're right the air force is gonna have to foot the bill and where are all the international partners they're all in the a program except for some italy has some and uk has some b's but almost everyone is buying the a version and so uh, whatever the Air Force does is what the international community does, and the international community is looking at TR3 and all these other upgrades, and they're going, okay, okay, we'll, 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 we're okay with some of this, but then you throw another $7 billion on their, on, their, on their docket, and they're like, okay, like I'm not going to be able to get this through our parliaments. Like, they can only accept so much. So I think what I was really surprised about is Lockheed, actually at the Paris Air Show, uh, had some talking points where they were again pushing for the adaptive acquisition adaptive engine and saying like you know uh, this is the way to go which a lot of the international partners there were apparently kind of uh surprised about that and and they were you know not supportive at that at that time so yeah i don't really know why lockheed is on that other than they just are looking long range and saying we we want this to become more attractive and the adaptive engine would would help with that yeah my, my take is i i think there's three angles if i was lockheed martin here, here's my take. I'm like, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna piss off a lot of current customers, but they're gonna make a ton of money off of this because those are all cost plus contracts. Like, yeah, we'll do the engine integration. Yeah, we'll do this. Yeah, we'll do that. So the, the huge amount of money from just contracts for integrating the engine. So that's the first one. So money is a motivator. The second one is the amount that they're gonna learn as a airframe manufacturer of how to put an adaptive engine into a tactically relevant platform. The only way to do that is through a government contract. So if I was Lockheed, I'd be like, yeah, we're absolutely going to double down on this and we're going to have a leg up on Boeing. We're going to have a leg up on Northrop. We're going to be the first people to do this. So again, as the, as a, the world's largest defense contractor, I think it makes a ton of sense strategically for them to go, yep, we want to do that. And then, Oh, by the way, if we do all of this and and this all manifests like we think, it makes the F-35 look a lot better to maintain a lot longer, which then 
hedges a little bit of the the need uh again you could argue either way then quote need for a sixth generation fighter program and so or how many do we need to buy and, and some so your your market share of like i'm the incumbent if i just make my thing good enough win or lose the sixth generation fighter competition like it's kind of it's a hedge bet i can minimize the impact of win or loss of that of just you know i've already got the market share everyone's buying f-35 now so let's just make it better and and we're gonna learn a lot I think you're right. Those are good insights. One one last thing to add to that would be they they may have done their rounds on the hill and found that the advocacy for an alternative engine is was too great and decided to play the game rather than fight it because uh, if you the Haskell had 500 million for an alternative engine and the Hack D actually just supported 150 million, so they may have read the tea leaves and said, you know, let's get on let's get on board. Uh, like and with all the benefits that you said it's like yeah why, why fight this too hard this is really this is really not their battle anyway right so yeah and congress a great point so on the on the hill and the politics of this plan out uh you're right the the house armed services committee they approved 588 million dollars for one more year of the program again we'll just kick it one more year and then we'll see how it goes and then the house appropriations defense subcommittee the hack d that's what it's called um they the other people who actually have the money yeah. they they put 150 million dollars into the defense budget for again one more year to keep the adaptive engine program going and they and actually in the language they actually said it was it was a hedge against the engine core upgrade from Pratt Whitney so my take is that doesn't matter because in one year you're not going to have enough information in the engine core upgrade to fund or defund the adaptive engine program anyways you're going to need three or four years before you have enough data to make a decision so i think this is like a political appeasement strategy most importantly both of the things that we just said are on the house side there's the senate the sask the senate armed services committee said no do not fund the adaptive engine and then i can't remember what the senate appropriations came out with they haven't come out yet. They haven't, they, haven't, they haven't come out yet. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a huge range of what's going on in Congress politically, which will determine if the, if the F-35 adaptive engine even gets funded for the well the the R&D program gets funded for even one more year. Um, so I think it's a bigger. Um, have we wait before we move on to the bigger bigger picture? And I have a spicy take at the end here. Is there anything you can think of that we missed? I do think GE maybe you know maybe be a little short sighted with this uh, with this engine because I think we are starting to realize that the F thirty five will probably not have as many. I mean, the, the, with the, with your national partners, it still will be, but the, the Air Force is probably not going to buy as many. And that really we are going to move in. We're moving to a new space uh, in terms of NGAD and having a mix of uh, collaborative combat aircraft and all that stuff. So, you know, there will be somebody chosen for that. And I have a hard time, just like with the B-21, I think everybody kind of knew Northrop was going to win it because if they didn't, they'd never be in the space again. If they don't pick GE for NGAD, then it's going to be, I think GE will just turn their focus to the commercial market and stop trying to play as much in the defense space. Just looking just looking to the future and where, where, the, where the military is going. So I think uh, maybe just a my only, my only thing is like, I just wonder how this will play out in the end when, uh, as they start to see military priority shift and, and like, oh, okay, is the F-35, do we need this many of them? And now things start to move towards other platforms and drones and, and all the other things that are coming into play. So yeah, be interesting to watch how, how that plays out. Great point. We, we actually, that reminded me, we didn't cover something. So the next generation air dominance program which is a sixth generation fighter 
that's being developed now. It has its own engine program called Next Generation Air Propulsion. And guess what? The, the manufacturers are the same, and they're building presumably an adaptive engine for the Next Generation Air Dominance program. So there's two programs kind of running in parallel. The, the F-35 sized engine, which is the AETP, and then the other engines that are going into the next generation air dominance, which they haven't ever obviously ever advertised anything about the specifications of what that might be. So there's an unclassified one. There's a classified one with the same contractors doing the work. So there's definitely some synergies between the two to your point about the industrial base, because it's a 50, 50 market share. If you ostracize one of them, the incentive, like what are your incentives to do? it could potentially destroy the U.S. industrial base uh, advancement of engine core technology. And if you go back and it was a few months ago, this is another one of those interesting things that comes out in, in the public that some people don't track. The The guy, um, John Sneeden, who leads the propulsion directorate for the Air Force, so he's been there forever, he actually came out and said, hey, if we don't pick an adaptive engine, the the industrial base is going to atrophy and it's actually at risk of collapse because we have not designed a new engine in 30 years and oh by the way china and russia are catching up to our 1990s engine designs and everything flying around today is 1990s or earlier uh, engine designs some of the, the fighters that we're flying now have engines that were the engineering principles and stuff were from the 70s and the 60s even so they're just updates of, of designs that we've done back then. And so if we've been working on adaptive engines for 15 years at this point and go, you know what, we're still, we're still not going to risk it because we didn't risk it with the F-22 program based on the political circumstances. We decided not to fund two engines for the F-35 um, you know, 10 years ago. Where does that leave us today? And when you look at China and Russia, what's going on? Again, the, the, the geopolitical situation is completely different and I think you can't ignore that when you look at this engine debate, which kind of gets me to my spicy take uh, at the end. I think you're right. Yeah, I mean, we, we we need to think bigger picture. I think this is sort of like what we've been learning, right, the past few years on, on munitions and other things is that we really haven't considered... Uh, you know, our surge capacity, when we need to surge, we haven't really thought as much about uh, really maintaining, rather than focusing on purely on affordability, we do have to stay affordable, but also focusing on resiliency and and having a robust, you know, robust competition and things like that. I think you're, I think you're dead on. I think we have to, we have to be thinking of those larger, larger, those larger picture items. Otherwise, uh, we're going to get ourselves into a, you know, into a sole source situation that, you know, basically the government will have no control and we'll be paying whatever price is. All right. So I'll give you my spicy take and then we'll, we'll wrap it up. So here's my spicy take. I say, fuck it. Back up the dump trucks of money, unload them and develop a new engine for the F-35, but award it to both GE and Pratt and & Whitney. And, and there's a whole bunch of reasons why. The first reason is, like I said, neither have built a new fighter jet engine in 30 years. If you pick one but not the other, again, the atrophy of the industrial base, it's a 50-50 split. So if one company gets a contract to build it, then the other one doesn't. And so your your industrial base technologically does not advance. And so you end up with a someone with a sizable advantage over another one. And so I say fund them both. You will get a better product out of these programs, which is why 
those same two manufacturers are in the adaptive engine programs. Uh, that's an R and D and the one for the, the sixth gen fighter I told you engines are hard. China is finally building indigenous fighter jet engines for in the last like five or six years. They're starting to fly them. Uh, they've been dependent on Russian engines for a long, long, long time because engines are hard. But as people figure out how to build stuff, if we don't invest in our industrial base to advance that technology, we're just going to be on par, right? So we're not going to have an advantage in our industrial base. And that's one of the, the enduring advantages of a global competition and deterrence is having a capability capacity advantage. And so if we don't invest in our industrial base just to, for that sake alone, we're going to get screwed here in about 10 years because China's going to leapfrog past us and we're going to wonder what we're doing. And then obviously we talked about it before, but if you build a better engine for the F-35, Number one, it has adaptability, presumably into the B-21 program, because it should be the same form function with some, you know, obviously without an afterburner. And then here's my last take. The F-35 engine is huge. It's a, it's a big, big engine because it's one big engine. We're going to guess here that, you know, a normal jet engine is not that big. It's like the biggest jet engine, um, afterburning jet engine that's been built. So if we assume that the next generation air dominance fighter, let's just say it'll have two engines and they're not as big. That means that at some point, as you mature the technology, you start with something very, very big, and then you shrink it down to something smaller and shrink it down to something smaller. So if you start with R and D and you have an engine on a engine test stand, it can be as big as it needs to be to, to mature the tech. And then you start going through the tech readiness levels and maturation and shrink it down. And now it's to an F 35 size. It's a production ready F 35, right? Well, that's a huge engine. That's probably a good stair step on the way to making it smaller to fit inside a next generation air dominance fighter. Again, assuming that it, the engine will, itself will be smaller. There's probably going to be two engines. That's my spicy take. Fuck it. Fun them both. Do it. Do it for America. <laughs> All right, Matt, we're, we're about out of time here. You got any parting shots? I think the bottom line is that the ECU engine upgrade, good, but not going to cut it for much longer. So there's going to be decision points here in the near future for the leadership. And uh, yeah, we're not, there's no easy way out. So. Matt, I think we we left the listeners with more questions than answers. Uh, <laughs> Just which keep I think watching is okay. This space. Keep watching this space. Yeah. <laughs> keep watching this space. Yeah. Uh, we don't have all the answers. We're trying to do is give you the information and some perspectives. Uh, hopefully, we, we helped you make sense of defense a little bit today uh, on this issue. Uh, we don't have the answers, and the decisions aren't being made. Uh, they're not final yet until you know checks in the mail from Congress, and even then, it's not final because you can undo anything. Uh, <laughs> if you like what you heard, like us, share it, give us a comment on wherever you get your pods or on the YouTube channel. We really appreciate it. Matt, thanks for coming on the show and, uh, remind people where they can find you. Are you, uh, are you just hot on LinkedIn or what's the best place to find you? Yeah. Well, Pete uh, Medigli and I, uh, do a newsletter and blog, uh, defense acquisition, uh, Substack. So, um, yeah, that's, uh, that's where, if you want some updated news, Mike has, an incredible job uh so we just kind of build on some of the some of the merge work but uh yeah if you want to want another newsletter to to review on saturday morning yeah that's a great plug so i'll put a link in the show notes for matt's linkedin profile and i'll put a linkedin in the show notes for the defense acquisition news there the newsletter that him and pete run it's a great newsletter it goes into some details and nuances that the merge doesn't necessarily cover all the time 
because there's, you know, there's so much going on, like no one person can cover it all. And so it's a great secondary outlet. Highly recommend. It's a good reading. Well, that's a wrap guys. Thanks for joining. We'll see you.